Hey, Kate. Hey, Daniel. Welcome to episode two of Hot and Bothered, a new podcast on the politics of climate change for the 99%. We're hosted by Descent Magazine, and in case you missed it, you can check out our first episode at descentmagazine.org. We're also on Stitcher and at the iTunes Store. Today on the show, we've got a great interview with Naomi Klein. And because it's such a media interview, we're just going to fill you in on her latest work and then get right into it. I'm also looking forward to talking to you, Kate, about some of your own work on just transitions away from fossil fuels after we've sat down with Naomi. Perfect. Naomi Klein is a Canadian author and activist. She's written three big agenda-setting books, each of which has had a major influence on global left politics. They are No Logo, The Shock Doctrine, and most recently, This Changes Everything, Capitalism versus the Climate. She's also made two documentaries with her husband, Avi Lewis, The Take, about Argentine factory workers taking over their factory, and This Changes Everything, a feature-length companion to the book. We are so excited to have her on Hot and Bothered. Lately, Klein has been busy advocating for the Leap Manifesto. For listeners who are unfamiliar with the manifesto, it's a short text, about 1,300 words long, and it lays out a really forward-looking vision and blueprint for what a low-carbon Canada could look like. It starts with the imperative to respect Indigenous rights and values, using these as a foundation for decarbonizing the economy And the manifesto lays out 15 high-level policy demands toward those ends, including everything from a shift to 100% renewables by 2050 to a, quote, vigorous debate on a universal basic income. The manifesto's origin story is pretty interesting, too. About one year ago, Klein and some of her colleagues convened a two-day meeting of 60 representatives from Canada's indigenous rights, social and food justice, environmental and faith-based and labor movements. The manifesto is associated with Naomi Klein, and she's a strong advocate, but it's really a collective document. It's also more than a just Canadian story. The process, but not the document itself, per se, is intended as a model for other countries and regions to build their own low-carbon agendas, responsive to local politics and conditions. So check it out at leapmanifesto.org. Meanwhile, Daniel, since you get into some detail about the Canadian political context of the Leap, would you care to give us a Cliff Notes rundown of Canadian politics before we dive in? Americans aren't known for knowing too much about Canadian politics beyond the fact that your new prime minister is super hot. So speaking of super hot, I mean, first of all, most Canadians, I don't think really think that Justin Trudeau is that hot. But Leonard Cohen, who is really hot, Kate, weren't you just telling me that he signed the Leap Manifesto? He did. Okay, so that's the first half of the Cliff Notes. Here's the second bit. There are a couple of key things to know about Canadian politics. So the first is we have three major political parties, not two. We have the Conservative Party and their right wing. We have the New Democratic Party, or NDP, who are left of center. So they're kind of like Bernie Democrats, more or less. So, you know, NDP, Bernie, it kind of rhymes. Uh, In the interview, Klein will refer many times to the NDP. So that's what that's about. And then we have the Liberal Party. It's the governing party, led by Justin Trudeau. And typically, they run on the center-left and talk center-left. Then they govern from the center-right, kind of like Clinton Democrats. Got it. And there's something special happening in Alberta, eh? Hey. Now, this really does sound like I'm back home. So, right. The other key point is that in Alberta, 
which is where Canada's tar sands are, the big oil deposits, where the huge Fort McMurray wildfire is raging. So Alberta is basically the Texas of Canada, and that's where the center-left NDP recently won an election. Um, That's about a year ago, and that's basically a huge deal because it's as if a bunch of Bernie Democrats had swept into power in Texas. So totally unprecedented, really interesting what's going on there, and we're going to be talking a bit more about that situation with Naomi Klein later on. Thanks for that, Daniel. And without further ado, here's Naomi Klein. So to start off, uh, so you're Canadian, and um, I'm Canadian too. And uh, you know, I want to start with asking about the Leap Manifesto, which you and a broad coalition of others uh, drafted last year. This year, the manifesto was debated at the left of center New Democratic Party convention. Uh, it was in Alberta, the home of the tar sands. And party delegates voted to debate the manifesto in a kind of pseudo endorsement uh, over the years ahead. So you've had a really intense reaction, good and bad. And I, I want to ask you a bit about you know, your reactions to that. So some of the harshest critics have been from the broad center left. The center left premier of Alberta, Rachel Notley, called the manifesto naive and ill-informed. Another longtime progressive intellectual argued that it wasn't even left wing. Um, at the same time, you've obviously had a very positive reaction as well. So I'm wondering if you would just talk a little bit about how the Leap Manifesto has been received in Canada as it's kind of been center center stage in the news. Sure. Yeah. I mean, just to back up, I wouldn't say the harshest critiques came from the center left. Uh, the harshest critiques have definitely been from the right. Uh, the, our right-wing newspaper, the National Post, uh, has probably run about 40 columns attacking the leap, calling it basically the end of the world and certainly the end of Canada. Our former uh, Tory prime minister, Brian Mulroney, came out of retirement to say that uh, it would destroy Canada and must be defeated. So certainly it is not the center left that is that is hitting us hardest. It remains the right. But the, the uh, Alberta government, the NDP government in Alberta, uh, certainly came out very strongly against uh, the Leap Manifesto, but more specifically against the idea of their party at, at a national level uh, endorsing the manifesto. Uh, and, uh, and, and this is, I have to say, it's, that whole debate is less about the, the substance of the Leap Manifesto, which uh, Rachel Notley, the Premier of Alberta, admitted she hadn't read in full, um, and and uh, really about a line in the Elite Manifesto that says we can't build any new fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, this government in Alberta is doing a lot of really good things. Um, and it's important for uh, listeners outside of Canada to understand what a huge deal it is that there is an NDP government in, in Alberta. Alberta is Canada's Texas. Um, it's our most right wing uh, uh, oil dependent um uh, province for more than 40 years they have had a conservative government uninterrupted uh, Tory rule in Alberta single party state and when the price of oil collapsed uh, a year ago uh, the, the the fact that the that the province had been so badly mis- mismanaged and that they had gone through this huge oil boom and still had a budget deficit led to this big backlash against that party and the NDP winning. So not just our center centrist liberal party, but our center left party coming to power. The headline um, 
in one headline at the time was hell just froze over. <laughs> so it's a very big deal that we have this center left government in Alberta um, and they are introducing some uh, very good environmental standards, certainly good compared to what was there before. Uh, they're phasing out coal. Uh, they're fighting austerity, even in the midst of an economic crisis. So uh, they're doing some very good things. What they are not doing is standing up to the most powerful industry in their province, which is the oil industry. And, and to the contrary, they have a very clear strategy, which, and they've said it very openly. What they've said is, we're going to uh, clean up our act, we're going to have better environmental standards, we're going to clean up the tar sands, whatever that means, and, in, and, and we're going to lower our consumption-based emissions in Alberta, i.e. not the emissions associated with the tar sands, but the emissions associated with Alberta powering, you know, heating its own homes and so on. Um, and this will apparently buy them social license to build more pipelines and expand tar sands production. So basically it's based on this idea, and it's actually an idea shared by our new Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau, that what went wrong under the old right-wing governments of Stephen Harper and the previous um, government of Jim Prentice in Alberta, their, our right, their, their right-wing premier, was that they were sort of so egregious when it came to environmental standards that they created the conditions for Obama to say no to Keystone. And that by cleaning up their act, they'll get the pipelines built. And, you know, what we're saying is, one, it's not going to work uh, because British Columbia doesn't want the pipelines, Quebec doesn't want the pipelines, um, but also it doesn't make scientific sense. What, we've, what we're hearing from climate scientists is that if we want to make good on the temperature targets in the Paris Agreement, we cannot expand production in the Alberta tar sands. Around 90% of that carbon has to stay in the ground. So their fight is not really with the leap, frankly. Their fight is with really Quebec and, and British Columbia and the scientific community that is saying you can't expand production. But the leap became a lightning rod because it was their own party that was... Uh, on the verge of, of uh, aligning itself with it. Great. So I think we want to dig a, a bit more into the policy uh, in a minute. But first, I wanted to just touch on, I think, the emotional part of this debate. Um, and I think you spoke this as well, this issue of the LEAP becoming uh, a lightning rod. It struck me, you know, that in some ways, the LEAP manifesto and your, your book, uh, This Changes Everything, returned to some of the territory of your first book, uh, No Logo, where it seemed that people also had, you know, very intense kind of a moral re and moralizing reactions to it. Um, people sort of raised this question of hypocrisy. A small Canadian magazine dug through your trash to see if you were a hypocrite. Um, and it seems like often when people approach this question, they just wonder if you're, or if, you know, the environmental community or others are sort of saying, this is how a person should live and you're kind of guilty and responsible for all these things. So comparing your work on sweatshops back then to your work on climate change now, I wonder how much has changed and, and how much feels familiar in terms of people kind of having these gut reactions to the to the work you're putting out there. Well, first of all, this isn't just my work and this isn't just me who gets this type of reaction, right? This is anybody who is really out there uh, on climate change gets this kind of hypocrisy smear, right? You have to live an entirely carbon-free lifestyle in order to have a position uh, that we need to collectively get off carbon, right? And so uh, this is a criticism that we all get. Um, and, I, you know, I think that uh, it, it is 
a valid discussion to talk about our lifestyles. But what's interesting, and you know, you mentioned no logo, is um, you know I see you know I think there's two things going on. One is there's just a sort of strategy from uh, you know people who are very invested in the status quo to make this an issue around personal purity and personal hypocrisy, right? And what I say is, look, if we have to already uh, be 100% off fossil fuels and already living in a post-capitalist society uh, in order to join this discussion, then it's going to be a really small movement of like four people because we live in a capitalist economy that is powered by fossil fuels. So we are all complicit to one degree or another, right? Um, but then there's there's another issue, which is just that the neoliberalism has been so triumphant and colonized all of our lives and all of our minds and all of our imagination to such a degree that when you present even a progressive audience with a problem, often one of the first responses is, how can I solve this as a consumer, right? So, you know, when, when I, when I uh, wrote No Logo and published No Logo, you know, 15 years ago now, um, this, you know, the, no, the, end, the end of No Logo is all about the need for trade unions as a response to, to sweatshops and also the need to completely revamp our global trading system because it's really the, the rules of those games that facilitate this race to the bottom. And, you know, I wrote that and I would say that in all of my speeches, but almost, you know, inevitably the first or second question would be what kind of sneakers can I buy that are ethical, right? Um, and so I think that there is, there has been actually um, until this sort of wave of uh, fossil fuel divestment movement or and blockadia, you know, all of this uh, activism where people are taking on the fossil fuel companies directly, much of the climate activism was just about personal consumption. It was about changing your light bulbs and buying a hybrid. And it did conform to that sort of neoliberal, like the way in which we are most powerful is as consumers. And I think what's really exciting about this new generation of climate activists um, is that they are saying, what can we do collectively uh, at, you know, as uni university students, um, you know, at the city council level, at a policy level, uh, and, uh, and that's actually much, much more powerful. And the LEAP manifesto is not about how we change our lives as individual consumers, because we know how to lower our individual carbon footprint, but that is not going to be enough to lower our collective emissions by around 10% a year, which is what we need to be doing in wealthy countries like the United States and Canada. So maybe one new factor in talking about climate change as opposed to sweatshops is this, is this question um, of ur urgency and this kind of scientific timeline that we're on. And when people start to think about that, they, they think about not just their quality of living and how many T-shirts they can buy, but uh, when you talk about workers and unions in the fossil fuel industry, for instance, whether they can put food on the table. Uh, and for years, the progressive green response to that has been to talk about green jobs as it's key to rebuilding the middle class. Uh, for unions, though, this poses a choice between real jobs and notional jobs, which is talking a talking point the right loves. And so my question here is, you know, how do you persuade people that there is another way forward um, and that there is really a, a path which isn't just um, hypothetical? Right. So this is where, where I think um, the Leap Manifesto tried to change this discussion and, and expand this discussion uh, so that we aren't just talking about green jobs as, um, you know, just putting up solar panels and wind turbines, though that too, and, and 
building public transit and, and all of that good stuff, all of those green jobs. And we know we can create many more jobs uh, if we invest in efficiency, renewables, transit, than if we invest in oil and gas. All that research has been done. But as you said, it's mostly been a debate between notional jobs and real jobs. Um, but in the Lean Manifesto, you know, what's different about this is that it's not just a set of disconnected demands. We're making the connection between the logic of austerity uh, and the things we need to do in the face of climate change. So we need to take on that logic. And there are many workers who benefit when we take on the logic of austerity. We're also say we can't be signing any new trade deals like the Trans-Pacific Partnership that get in the way of the things we need to do in the face of the climate crisis, and we need to rewrite the deals we already have that are already getting in the way. Um, and we know that those deals cost real jobs. So this, this, this is all connected to employment. Um, but the other thing that we say in the LEAP Manifesto is that we need to recognize and expand the low-carbon sectors that are already out there. You know, we, we, we recognize that putting up solar panels is a green job. We don't recognize that caring for kids or the sick is a low is low-carbon work, overwhelmingly done by women, much of it underpaid, much of it under siege by the logic of austerity. Um, and, and so that we have found is really galvanizing. Um, and we're doing an event with uh, high school teachers, that's high school teachers union in Ontario this week. Uh, we've worked a lot with the Canadian Union of Public Employees, which is the largest uh, union in the country, uh, representing workers in the public sector, uh, in the caregiving professions and so on, uh, in, in public energy as well. And they're really excited by this expansion of a definition of what a green job is, that it is about reinvesting in that low carbon work. So there's that. But then there's also the fact that we actually aren't having a debate between actual jobs and notional jobs anymore. We were two years ago. But since the price of oil collapsed, the oil and gas industry has been laying off workers in droves for uh, for a long time when the price of oil was at around $100 a barrel. This was the only sector that was creating huge numbers of very well-paying blue-collar jobs. You know, in Alberta, uh, guys in their early 20s were getting jobs starting at $200,000 a year. Um, nobody else was offering anything close to that, right? Uh, and we are in a very different moment now where the oil and gas industry has thrown around 100,000 workers in Canada under the bus in the midst of their, uh, of their price collapse. Uh, and the trade union movement in Canada is realizing that the only opportunity for job expansion is real climate action. So our Labour Federation, the Canadian, uh, the, the, the Canadian, our version of the AFL-CIO, the CLC um, ha it has put forward their one million climate jobs plan. Uh, so they're really getting behind this, and we're seeing we're seeing some progress. Frankly, not enough. And we saw this um, in the debates around the Leap Manifesto, where uh, you know the, the strongest, some of the strongest voices against the Leap uh, in Alberta came from the building trades, just like the strongest opposition to the uh, to the fight against Keystone came from those trade unions. And they came out so strong with this sort of line that you're a latte-sipping liberal if you want to take this kind of climate action and not build new pipelines, that it's not that they persuaded the rest of the labor movement uh, to side with them. But I think that there's such a strong code of conduct in the labor movement around, you know, solidarity and standing with people who are in pain. And oil workers are very much in pain right now. And 
because of those job losses, but also right now in Alberta because of the forest fires and people losing their homes and being displaced in massive numbers, that there's kind of a feeling of, you know, we don't want to make things worse for them. But uh, we have to find a way through this because um, we, we're, we're, as you said, Kate, you know, we are on a deadline. And one answer to this dilemma between economic prosperity and that deadline is this notion of selective degrowth that you raise in the book. Scale down the bad, like coal, and scale up the low-carbon good. As the manifesto argues, this is a way to an economy that's both more sustainable but is also better at meeting people's needs, even once. Still, the only models we have for giving people more prosperous lives are these massive growth-oriented spending projects that involve burning a lot of fossil fuels, like the New Deal. In other words, grow the thing and there will be more to distribute. Especially for those living through austerity of one kind or another, degrowth might seem like an odd concept. So what does selective degrowth at a national level look like for people in places already forced to consume less? Well, you know, the part... I mentioned the part of the Leap Manifesto that talks about expanding the caring professions, and this this is um, this is the sort of big, the frame for the Leap Manifesto is uh, is you know, the subtitle of it is caring for caring for the planet and each other, right? Um, that we have to move from an extractive economy that is about extracting endlessly from the earth and extracting endlessly from people's bodies, from their labor, from our social safety net, as if there is no breaking point, um, to a culture based on taking care of one another and taking care of the planet and recognizing the work of caretaking and of land defense as labor. Um, so I think what it looks like on a national level is not just contraction. And this is, you know, I think that, you know, even though I agree with the, you know, pretty much every one of the policy points of the, you know, degrowth movement, I, I think that degrowth as a brand is not a helpful one in the age of austerity because people are already seeing so much contraction in their standards of living, in um, in the services that they uh, get with their taxes, um, and sort of putting degrowth front and center to me, it's, it's it seems really tone deaf um, in in terms of what people are experiencing. So we need to talk about the areas that we need to contract. Uh, we do need to contract. Uh, our use of fossil fuels and the parts of our economy that are just based on mindless consumption and speculation that fields mind, mindless consumption. But we can and must expand those parts of our economy that are already low carbon and that are about improving people's qualities of life. I mean, this is, you know, in the, it, when we talk about low carbon work as including uh, caretaking, um, health care, the arts, all of these social services; these are parts of our of our of our lives that improve quality of life, right? So, you know, I've always and you know, I've made many arguments with my friends in the degrowth movement that it, we have to be talking about the areas that we need to expand at the same time as we talk about contraction. If we're only talking about contraction, uh, I don't think as a movement we're, we're going to get anywhere. And the other thing you know, we we um, have in in the leap and. Uh, you know, I should say that this grew out of a kind of unprecedented meeting uh, in Canada a little bit more than a year ago, where we had 60 movement leaders from a very broad section of, of organizations debating this. And the issue of a guaranteed annual income or a basic income came up 
um, and some people were very strongly in favor of it, uh, um, including on environmental grounds, that when people aren't forced to take work um, because they have to put food on the table, they will not take work that, or they'll be much less likely to take work that um, is damaging to their local environment. So we need to be able to give people these choices. Uh, now, in the end, what the Leap Manifesto says is it, it calls for a debate on, uh, on, on the need for a guaranteed annual income, because as you know, this is a very contentious issue in parts of the labor movement. Um, and, uh, you know, we, this is a, a consensus document, and that's how we got 200 organizations to sign it and tens of thousands of Canadians. You know, I think actually this discussion of expanding the notion of a low-carbon job is definitely one of the most powerful and exciting things to be coming out um, of this collective work right now. So I, I want to just uh, turn us to something a little bit more concrete in terms of what's going on in Ontario, uh, and then we'll move to the U.S. Um, context. So, you know, Ontario uh, is the biggest province in Canada, uh, but 14 million people, the richest province. And we've just gotten word that there will be a $7 billion climate action plan, more or less. And, you know, what I'm kind of interested in is basically... On the one hand, we have the Leap Manifesto and this kind of big vision, which is really exciting. And then you get things like the Ontario Climate Plan, which seem very kind of mixed. So on the one hand, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to retrofit social housing. On the other hand, putting almost as much money into electric, into electric cars uh, as into transportation, so that the right is now already saying this is basically a pro-Porsche plan. So, you know, we don't have the final details, but I'm, I'm kind of wondering if you can just walk us through... How do you go about engaging with specific, ambitious climate action plans, which are so much better than we had before, but that nonetheless are full of these really profound and intense contradictions and that kind of scramble the message of something like the Leap Manifesto? Well, I don't know if it's scrambling it. I mean, the Leap Manifesto is never going to, you know, I, I, you know, in our wildest dreams, we imagined that there would be a coalition government after replacing our previous right wing government um, that would be quite... Uh, vulnerable to pressure, right? I mean, we don't. We have a we have um, an extremely flawed uh, electoral system in our country, as you do in yours, which means that you don't need a majority of votes to get a majority, and once you have a majority, you can pretty much do what you want. The only exception is when you ha is when parties are forced to cobble together uh, you know, a coalition in the context of a minority government, and we thought we might be in a situation like that, but when we're not. Um, yeah, it's it, you know we're in this dynamic of, uh, of of governments that have a lot of power until they have to go back to the ballot box, uh, being pressured from the outside, and so this is what's going to be happening in Ontario to try to improve the plan. Um, but I think that this is the fact that we are seeing the, uh, these increasingly ambitious plans, including in Alberta, is a result of this kind of. Pressure. I mean, a big reason why we threw out our last government was because Canadians were tired of being seen as climate criminals on the world stage. Right now, the, the Trudeau government is holding hearings uh, about their climate plans, and everywhere they go, they're, he they're hearing from rooms filled with people, um, many of whom have signed the Leap Manifesto, uh, many of whom are engaged in similar projects uh, like the People's, uh, People's Climate Agenda. Uh, which are very clearly saying we need a justice-based transition to 100% renewable energy that is that connects uh, indigenous rights, uh, labor rights, and climate action. So we are making progress, uh, but we aren't the government. So uh, you know we aren't in the position where we're actually writing policy. 
And that leads me into a question about the U.S. Uh, a few weeks ago, you came out as a dual Canadian-American citizen, endorsing Bernie Sanders for president. And we've just spent a while discussing Canada. And there are, of course, differences in the way our political systems operate, which you referenced. Uh, but there's also a very different political moment here in the U.S. So I was wondering if you could talk about what you see as the main differences between U.S. and Canadian politics right now, just in terms of what's what's sort of happening on the political stage, both in terms of the election itself and just the broader political moment that we're in. Well, you know, I actually think that that, that this the U.S. may be in a pretty similar situation to, to the one we were in in Canada when we wrote the Leap Manifesto, um, which is that, that we found ourselves in a situation where people were not very inspired by any of the major political parties, including the Liberals, uh, the, and certainly from a climate perspective, none of the parties were making climate change an election issue. They all decided that people didn't really care about this, and and they weren't. And when they did talk about climate change, they weren't connecting it to Indigenous rights, weren't connecting it to fighting inequality, weren't connecting it to job creation in in a, in a really consistent way. Um, so we decided to write this people's this people's platform, which is what the leap is, so that we could put pressure on the next government because we know we don't have time to wait another four or five years and see if somebody has a better idea, right? Um, and we also knew that that people were so desperate to get rid of Harper that there was going to be a lot of voting against. Um, and uh, a lot of people were going to be motivated by that negative vote, right? Um, so I say you may find yourselves in that situation in the States because obviously the most likely, overwhelmingly likely scenario is, is a Trump versus Clinton um, uh, campaign. Um, race and uh, and uh, and Hillary Clinton will be trying to motivate uh, Sanders supporters by uh, by saying you, everybody has to unite against Trump and there's certainly a very strong argument to be made that everybody should unite against Trump but I think the need to, if you are going to try to sell motivate people with a, that, that, that with fear um, and with that negative sentiment, uh, I think there's also a responsibility to continue to give people something to say yes to. And up until now, a lot of people have felt that Sanders represented that positive yes vote. Not everybody, but a lot of people did. If they lose that or when they lose that, uh, I think that there should be some sort of parallel process where people who do decide to hold their nose and vote Clinton um, because they are terrified of Trump have a way to say but this does not represent my actual political aspirations. This does not. This is not a vote for the country I actually want. It's a vote for the country I don't want. Um, but I'm not going to ab abdicate my right to articulate what that looks like. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see what happens uh, with all of the the anti-Trump movement, the pro-Sanders movement, all of the social movements um, that you know, are not getting behind any candidate like Black Lives Matter, what sort of formation comes out of that, if any, um, that that gives people a, a coherent yes. And that's the million dollar question in, in the left right now in the U.S. is, you know, what happens to all of these people who've been mobilized by the Sanders campaign, both within social movements and people who haven't done politics before at all? And you'll be speaking at the People's Summit next month, uh, and you'll be joined by Cornell West, who is just named to the Democratic Party committee platform alongside Bill McKibben. And so I have two questions around that, which is, 
One, if you were in that room in Philadelphia in July, what would you be pushing for? What would you hope for Weston Bill to say? And another is, how would that differ from from what you'd plan on telling the crowd at the People Summit? So are there two different strategies here uh, in terms of working both inside inside of the party, fighting for it, or potentially for a third party? Um, and what's the movement's uh, role in that? What are, what are uh, people who have been galvanized by this by this moment, how can they continue to ramp up pressure uh, from the outside? Yeah, so I think the, the meeting in, in, in Chicago is going to be really interesting because, because uh, it'll be clear where we stand at that point. And, I'll, you know, I'll certainly be making the kind of uh, pitch, I guess, that I've been making to you guys that um, that that now is is the moment to for for all of these different configurations uh, to come together and see if we can tell a coherent story about the yes right not just a list of demands but an alternative narrative uh, that is going to be more radical than whatever uh, um, you know people come up with in those hotel rooms in Philadelphia um, but you know it's it, it, it you know, I, I feel uh, very confident that that the people who Bernie Sanders has appointed are going to be fighting like hell to make that uh, document as strong as it can be, knowing full well that it isn't binding, uh, just like the Paris uh, Accord isn't binding. But, you know, when um, the, the, the Paris Agreement, you know, and I'm sure Bill McKibben talked to you about it when he was on the show, um, the thing about that agreement is it has a pretty good temperature target, 1.5 to 2 degrees, and a concrete plan to warm the planet by double that, by 3 to 4 degrees, and it isn't legally binding. So they could warm, we could all warm the planet by, you know, 6 to 10 degrees if we stay on the road we're on. But on the last day of the Paris summit, Bill uh, said, uh, you know, they said 1.5 and we're going to damn well hold them to it, that that is really what um, the climate movement needs to do and has been doing with these huge mobilizations around break free um, around the world. And so I think that um, I, I feel pretty confident that 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 this group of people is going to fight like hell to make that platform that comes out of Philadelphia be something that 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 an organized that organized social movements can hold, do their very best to hold Hillary Clinton to. And it's not, you know, I don't think anybody is under any illusions that a piece of paper alone is going to do the job, right? In the same way that we're under no illusions that the Paris Accord is uh, powerful without social movements making it powerful. And, you know, I always think it's worth remembering that the fossil fuel divestment movement, right, has, um, you know, it's all based on doing the math, uh, based on a temperature target that was agreed to in Copenhagen, the two degree temperature target, right? Uh, the math says that we have five times more carbon than is compatible with that two degree temperature target. That two degree temperature target is both inadequate and non-binding, um, but the fact that governments said it, even if they didn't mean it, it's still powerful in the ha hands of, uh, of mobilized people. Uh, so, uh, so I think that that's a sort of a, the, I guess that would be how I would think of the two-pronged strategy is make the platform as strong as possible and then hold uh, and, and then hold Hillary Clinton to it, uh, but also uh, uh, create the space to actually dream about the world we want, which is not just the best we can get in that hotel room in Philadelphia. Right. I certainly, certainly hope so. And 
on the one hand, there's this question of the how. So what is the strategy and what are people talking about? What's the substance of, of what's coming forward to, to say yes? And on the other hand, there's the question of the who. And the People Summit is pretty unique in terms of a gathering in the U.S. and that you have a lot of different movements coming together to the same place as organizations from the environmental movement to groups like the Working Families Party um, and this really interesting sort of configuration. And I think more so now than ever, there aren't people who would say they don't care about climate change or, you know, this isn't a concern of theirs. But when I talk to organizers outside of the climate movement, they say, you know, this is a concern of mine, this is something I care about and think about. But they also spend 70 hours a week working for $15 an hour to stop families getting deported, to make sure there, there aren't folks being accosted or, or killed potentially on their way home at night. And so the other issue here is um, even if you manage to get all these people in the same room and you do manage to get all of these groups talking to each other as folks who are self-consciously a part of social movements, that's still only, you know, a couple hundred thousand people max. And so I'm wondering here, you know, what what's the vehicle? What's the the sort of special sauce of um, bringing folks together? Is it is it some grand coalition? Um, is it a new people's campaign? Um, how do you sort of solve that challenge of the fact that, you know, there's just so much work to be done? There's so much work to be done. And, and even inside the climate movement, right, the energy of just stopping the bad ideas, um, you know, the new pipelines and the new export terminals, uh, you know, it takes the majority of the energy and it doesn't leave nearly enough uh, energy for articulating and fighting for the solutions that are going to inspire people and convince them that climate action is not what they're hearing all the time in terms of a job killer and, uh, you know, a destruction of your way of life, but actually an improvement of your quality of life for the vast majority of people if we do it right. If we, uh, and, uh, and so, you know, whatever, whatever the vehicle is, it can't just be a letterhead coalition of just a bunch of groups, you know, at the high level saying we all agree to this. There has to be um, a strategy for really amplifying the message and doing what Bernie Sanders has been doing, which is reaching people directly. Um, you know, I think the really exciting thing about uh, the Sanders campaign, there's a lot of exciting things about it. It's not perfect, as we all know. Um, but it's, you know, it's incredible proof of concept in terms of just how popular uh, very bold ideas can be, right? Uh, you know, I wouldn't say Bernie's ideas are radical, but they're certainly radical within the 40-year sweep of neoliberalism. Um, and when people hear them, uh, not just not people who are already in movements, already in coalitions, already in that room, as you say, um, but just regular people hear them and go, yeah, that sounds really, really good. Um, so I think uh, really prioritizing that amplification, uh, you know, has to be central. And we don't we have to not just go back to talking to each other. So I just want to ask one last question here. Um, you know, I think you talked a minute ago about kind of coming up with a space politically uh, to dream and to put some of these really bold ideas forward. And what I want to ask you in closing is, you know, when you think about where we can go uh, from here, what are some of the models or campaigns or kind of concrete achievements, uh, you know, politically speaking from the past that you think of and that give you a sense that this is really, you know, feasible, this is possible? So what, you know, what do you imagine or what inspires you in terms of prior political achievements or moments in fighting for this future, which really is going to be something new? 
Yeah, I mean, I think I think the truth is that we're we are going into new territory, but we we have to take inspiration from from previous moments where we we have just realized that there's that that there's way more of us than we imagined. And I think anybody who's involved in any kind of political organizing has had those sort of glimpses, those moments. Occupy was one of those moments uh, for 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 people in New York and where wherever it was formed, where it was like what like the surprise of how many non-activists wanted to be a part of it. Um, and, uh, and, and the surprise of how popular it was, right? Uh, I've seen that on a larger scale in, uh, in, in my own journalism, where I was lucky enough to be able to be in Argentina for a couple of years after the economic crisis hit that country very, very hard uh, at, in 2001. And they went through five presidents in three weeks. And then there was this kind of moment of, oh, well, now what, right? Um, we, we know how to get rid of presidents, but what do we want instead? Um, and to witness a, a country in the streets, not just protesting, but meeting on every street corner, it seemed, to dream about the country they wanted and to try to build it. And then we made a documentary film about workers uh, in hundreds of factories turning their factories that were being shut down amidst the economic crisis, occupying their factories and turning them into democratic cooperatives. Um, I carried that experience with me um, because, precisely because it was this sort of country, like, first of all, like a, a society inside out, like people just leaving their, their homes, their private spaces, and dreaming in public, and acting together, and not the people that you would cast as activists. Uh, and uh, and 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 dreaming up and experimenting uh, with direct democracy. Uh, so you know, I I feel like that was the best glimpse I've ever had in my lifetime. If I think you know historically, uh, the the kind the level of mobil- no sorry the level of mobilization that it, it is required um, is the kind of thing that we saw uh, you know in the run up to the to the to the New Deal, um, and you know that's well before my time. Uh, but it does prove that it's possible. And we are in this moment where the huge anti-austerity movements in Europe, uh, even the popularity of Pope Francis when he came to the United States or anywhere he goes, you know, this Pope talking about how the problems of capitalism, the sickness of capitalism, the response to Bernie Sanders, the huge rejection in movements of the new free trade deals. Um, That's why I say the task is to connect the dots. It's to tell a new story about how all of this resistance, Fight for 15, Black Lives Matter, I don't know more. Um, It is, these are the seeds of the new paradigm. Uh, But the combination of the urgency of all of all of these issues and the legacy of 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 siloing and compartmentalizing um, has meant that we don't have the spaces to connect those dots nearly enough. So Kate, since we ended by talking about some of the inspiring models that uh, Naomi thinks of when thinking about the kind of work we need to do to decarbonize our economy in a socially just way, I have actually a question for you. So, Kate, you have also taken up this question in a piece for Dissent Magazine's special climate justice issue. That's the current spring issue. Could you remind me uh, what exactly is that article about again or, you know, how would you put it? 
For sure. So it's 4,000 words, but I'll give the, the Cliff Notes version, which is that the piece breaks down different ownership structures in the renewable sector, solar in particular. Almost every week, you see stories about the rapid growth of renewables, yet the default of the conversation is private solar development or wind development in many cases. And lots of it is being driven by these big companies like Solar City or Sunrun Inc. And it's not to say that these companies are particularly evil. They're not. Many of them are actually doing really tremendous work. But that there hasn't been a widespread conversation about what the transition to renewables looks like that isn't driven by a profit motive. Yeah, Kate, that is totally right. Uh, I, my sense from you know reading this coverage is that it really is kind of all about these Silicon Valley disruptors, high tech innovation. So I would love to hear you know even a little more your take on what a kind of public nonprofit model would look like. So I discussed three main models, most of them from folks who have been doing the work to implement them for at least several years, and in some cases, even more. So the first is municipalization, which is bringing existing utilities back into public ownership and eventually transitioning them to renewable energy sourcing. Uh, Second is something called community choice aggregation, which a number of states already have. And that's where ratepayers collectively bargain for better rates and renewable power sourcing with existing utilities. And then there's the one I'm most excited about, uh, which is a kind of decentralized socialization. And it's a model uh, that the Rural Electrification Administration really pioneered back in the 30s with traditional utility development. And it was enacted as part of a suite of New Deal reforms, which, of course, is, as we've talked about elsewhere, uh, was the result of really tremendous social movement pressure from below. Uh, great. So, yeah, Kate, for me, the Rural Electrification Administration... Uh, say that five times quickly. It's a mouthful. <laughs> it's a mouthful. Um, so yeah, it's a New Deal project. You talk about it in the piece. I think it's the most exciting uh, bit of that article. Um, so you know, my read of it is we're talking about kind of community-run cooperatives, but they're set up and kind of encouraged with federal loans to electrify these parts of the country that didn't have electricity. And to me, reading it sort of felt like you were talking about a kind of Goldilocks sort of happy medium between big and central and then small and decentralized and between state and citizen. So, you know, this kind of Goldilocks middle ground that sort of works with the strengths of both there. Am I getting the the right idea? I don't know if I describe it as Goldilocks, but that's generally the right idea. So the thing about solar power in particular, even more so than wind, is that it really does lend itself to a kind of decentralization. And so I'm not a big fan of these kind of decentralization as a inherent good models of, of renewable development, though they exist and they're, they're fine and, and good models for certain places. Um, but decent, decentralization really is at the core of solar in that you can have people putting solar panels on their homes and you can have individual communities uh, really running these, whereas traditional utilities tend to be very, very centralized and, and fossil fuel development itself is very, very centralized um, and involves a huge input of capital which is why we have the economy we do and the way it's structured around fossil fuels and the way it is. Um, And so I think that the important thing to 
talk about when discussing these rural electric cooperatives is that they really are owned by the community. So the, the key distinction between this and say... Um, so hard, can I just take you back for a second? So they, are, they exist still, these cooperatives. It comes out of the New Deal, but they are still a major part of the economy today. Is that right? Yeah, they're a major part of the way Americans get their electricity. And by and large, they are run off of coal, even more so than other privately run utilities. And they're not progressive institutions. It's a really key thing to remember is that a lot of these are hugely regressive, totally bureaucratic, and completely out of democratic control. But the legal structure is such that there are ways for people to run candidates for co-op boards. Uh, There are really interesting ways that you can go about um, re-democratizing these, these structures, which were set up as democratic structures, but no longer are in many cases. Right. So basically, there is a kind of huge problem here, which is that a lot of this electricity, elect, you know, which is running these rural areas, is powered by coal. But at the same time, the structure of these things set up during the New Deal is such that there is a real opportunity to kind of take them back. Is that is that right? That's right. And we're seeing a similar problem with renewable energy that we did in the 30s, actually, when some 90 percent of rural homes didn't have electricity. And today, solar and renewables more generally, there's a huge sort of cost uh, barrier for for many folks who can't afford to put solar in their homes, who can't afford to buy into these kind of expensive programs or for whatever reason don't want to start up a cooperative uh, in their backyard. And so the idea behind this is that we need to rapidly scale up how much solar power is being out there. And just as in the 30s, there are gaps where the private sector won't go to build that out. Um, And so what this what this model allows for, if you think about it as uh, a means of solar and renewables development, uh, is for communities to come together um, and really demand federal funding to start up uh, really scalable renewables and, and things that can provide power for people cheaply. And that and that's the key exactly right, Kate. You're talking about the government needs to ultimately step in to make sure that this happens. Um, so there's this great line in the piece where you say that uh, the REA, the Rural Electrification uh, Administration, etc., uh, has been accused of quote creeping socialism. And uh, you know, so is that what we're you know is that what we're advocating here? Well, I hope so. I don't know if that's the most politic uh, way to talk about it in every context, but you mean to accuse socialism of being creepy? Yes. Yes. <laughs> All right. So um, we could, you know, obviously go on about this forever, but I would just encourage, uh, of course, listeners to go check out the piece itself, which is on the what will be linked on the Hot and Bothered landing page. Um, And so speaking of pieces to read, um, if you're kind of annoyed, maybe that we didn't spend this episode parsing the finer political economy of Klein's recent book, This Changes Everything. Don't worry, we've got you covered there as well. So uh, again, on the landing page of this podcast, Uh, We've got a link to a series of reviews of Klein's book published in uh, Jacobin Magazine. I've got a piece in there on cities. And um, Kate, I think there's also a review of This Changes Everything, the film that that you wrote and that we're going to put up as well on the page for this show. That's right. And while you're at it on the World Wide Web, maybe Googling some of the innards of Canadian politics, uh, why don't you check us out on Twitter as well? Uh, (laughs) Look, so the innards of Canadian politics are totally fascinating, by the way. So I definitely encourage you to Google those. But, you know, maybe as a priority, do tweet us your questions, comments, complaints, etc. using the hashtag hotbotheredclimate. And a uh, big thanks as well to our producer, the Descent editor, Colin Kinnebra, who is stoically sitting with us in the studio right now. Until next time, stay hot. Stay hot.
and stay bothered. <laughs>